Hello, listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project is to talk with authors, scientists, artists, historians, fisher poets, and a colorful cast of characters who are both knowledgeable and passionate about Alaska. Storytelling has always been key to how we connect as humans, piquing our curiosity and deepening our understanding. Our podcasts are unhurried, so we invite you to settle in and explore with us some of the richness that makes Alaska such a special place. Without further ado, let's begin. Welcome, listeners. My guest today is a longtime Alaskan. She's author of several books, including Fish Camp, Life on an Alaskan Shore, Green Alaska, Dreams from the Far Coast, Rock Water Wild, An Alaskan Life, Early Warming, Crisis and Response in the Climate Changed North, and most recently, P.H., a novel. She was honored as Alaska's Writer Laureate from 2008 to 2010, a time during which she traveled extensively throughout the state. She continues to both teach and work as a naturalist and advocate. Without further delay, it's my pleasure to introduce Nancy Lord. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be in your company here and to explore some of your world and the world which we share, Alaska. I like to begin these conversations by asking, what were the circumstances? How did you get to Alaska? Dan, I think we're about the same age, and so we we kind of had similar paths in a way. I think as young people, we, we both were entranced with the place. Uh, I first came at the age of 19 with some friends from college. We did a, a trip up in the Brooks Range, a hiking, climbing, rafting trip. And um, that just sold me. And as soon as I could, I uh, came back, moved moved to Homer, Alaska in 1973 with my partner. And we live there still all these years later. Still um, together, too. Kind of kind of amazing. Well, congratulations. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The, uh, the territory and the miles traveled together uh, can't be anything but uh, translate into richness. It's been a very, very good life. Very, you know, no, no regrets at all. Very, very happy with my, with my life. Yeah. Well, again, congratulations. So you and, and it's Ken, is that it's right? Ken. Mm-hmm. You and Ken moved to Alaska, settled in Homer. Uh, what were some of the first gigs that you found? How did you kind of get your feet on the ground? How did that work? Yeah. Well, we, uh, we picked Homer off a map just, um, when we were uh, back east, uh, and just uh, went there with no connections and no job prospects or anything, and we, you know, we did the usual kinds of things young people did at that time coming to Alaska. I worked in the cannery, uh, mostly crab and shrimp, for a while, and I worked for the weather service at night, recording the weather. And Ken did some change that was monitoring volcanoes, just changing the 
things that recorded the <laughs> seismic activity and uh, did uh, did a bunch of other things. Um, but we, I guess, the main thing was that right away, pretty soon, we um, started a or kind of took over a sporting goods store called Quiet Sports. Someone else had started it. Uh, just with a very few things all all in his size in case they didn't sell. That was kind of funny. And anyway, we sort of bought bought him out and ran a, um, a store called Quiet Sports. We sold uh, camping and, uh, you know, cross-country skis and bicycles and all the quiet kinds of recreation things. Mm. And we we did that for five years and just kept building the inventory. We built a new building. Uh, bought the bought the property, and anyway, that became our grub stake to get into fishing. Ah. So after uh, five years, we sold out. We had enough money to buy some uh, set net sites and cabin that went with them, and a boat. Uh, had a couple of fiberglass skiffs built, and and we were on our way. We fished for I don't know twenty five or so years, and and we've done a lot of other things too. I've never, you know, I've never thought in terms of a career, but I was, I was writing all, all along mm. and mm. did other, th- I worked for the state legislature for a decade oh my, yeah. in the winters. It was an education in itself uh-huh. and started teaching and went, actually went back to school at one point, got a master in fine arts in writing. And as you know, Alaska in those days, in the seventies into the eighties was a, just a, a time of great opportunity for young people and things that we would not have ever had a chance at in some other place. Yeah. But just lots of opportunity. Yeah. Well, uh, curiosity, uh, during those early years and, uh, okay, here's a gig. Let's, uh, let's see what we can do with the sporting goods store. Did you know that you wanted to be fishers then or how did that evolve? Yeah, well, that was more Ken's thing than mine, really. Um, he'd done a little lobstering on the East Coast, and, and he, he want, he's the one who wanted to be a fisherman, so that's why we chose Homer. Uh, we want, he wanted especially to live on the coast. I, was, I wanted to live, too, you know, on the water. I wanted to have mountains and water. But he, uh, he was more the—and he's done a lot more fishing than I have. I only was a salmon set netter, but Ken did— he did shrimp trawling and uh, some crabbing and a lot of salmon, a lot of tendering out west, Bristol Bay. He fished in Togiak. He did herring, fished herring. So, um, but we spent we spent all these you know all those summers together set netting, and it was just the two of us. We didn't hire a crew or anyone. And people, if people don't know set netting, it's fishing with a short gill nets set from shore, and you work them with just with an open skiff. It's very it's manual labor. It's very sort of low key. We were only open two days a week, so we weren't killing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was a great life. We lived in a remote area. We had bears walking by us all the time. We had beluga whales surfacing around us as we fished. I mean, I loved all the sort of the natural history of the place, and, mm-hmm. and that's where my book Fish Camp came out of. It's sort of all all that mm-hmm. and a you know, wonderful history there both of fishing and of indigenous peoples going back and we we had lovely neighbors who weren't the nearest one was a mile and a half away along the beach so they weren't too close but they were they were close enough for some really nice visits mm-hmm. well and, and for those who can't picture the geography homer 
is on the southeast portion of the Kenai Peninsula. And Cook Inlet is uh, an inlet that goes north. Anchorage is up at the top of it. Your fish camp, your set net site was where? Okay, Homer's actually on the southwest uh, part of the Kenai Peninsula. Okay. Coming down from, from Anchorage. And it's on Kachemak Bay, which is one, we like to say, one of the richest bays in the world. Glaciers come down into it. It's, got, it's kind of an estuary. And then our, our camp was um, actually farther up Cook Inlet and on the west side, the unroded side of Cook Inlet. And it was right at the narrowest point in the inlet. And our, we were fishing right on the end of a peninsula. Uh, that stuck out with very fast currents going mm. going by. So tell me about those currents. Uh, one knot. Uh, oh, four. Four knots. <laughs> four knots. And uh, <laughs> would they increase uh, on the spring tides and decrease on the neap tides? How did that go? Uh, well, yeah, they were faster on the bigger tides. But what, what we quickly learned, I mean, you think of tides being, uh, you know, six hours in and six hours out, but the circulation of the inlet we we learned the water kind of comes up the east side of the inlet and down the west side. And mm. so the the current was running out for eight hours. Oh, interesting. And huh. only coming in for four hours. Huh. And very high tides. It's almost like the Bay of Fundy in Maine. It was, you know, like 30-foot tides from, so it was kind of, you know, mud mud flats at the low tide and and then coming way up on the, mm-hmm. way up on the beach at high tide. And, and so we, unlike a lot of other set netting in other areas where you just set your net and it fishes all day. We were moving our nets all day long. Mm. We'd fish, you know, as the tide came in or went out, we were moving them to different locations. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And also because of the current, we would move around the, around the point and back back and forth. Oh, so, interesting. Huh. So, yeah, we were constantly pulling up anchors and putting the net nets back in the boat and then moving to a different area, re- resetting. Yeah, so very physical. Uh, it was very physical, way yeah. Of fishing. Yeah. Yeah. And did you find that the fish would hit primarily at a certain stage of the tide on the flood and then not so much on the ebb or how on that? Yeah, mostly on that on that uh short flood ah, time. Right. Yeah. And primarily sockeye or sockeye kings and Yeah, um we were about half and half uh sockeye and uh cohos or silvers. I see. So sockeye's sockeye or red and the other half cohos and silvers it, and of course it depended on the season uh-huh. in the early, early part of the season we'd be catching a few kings uh-huh. and then reds and then silvers uh-huh. later on uh-huh. yeah well i would love for you to share a, a prose poem that you've got that captures so much of some of the details and the nuance of time at uh, fish camp would would you be willing to to read that, share that? Sure, that, that piece from Fish Camp? Yeah. Yeah, okay, hold yeah. on. Okay. So this is a passage from my book, Fish Camp, and in it I am uh, walking the beach. I've been adjusting lines and buoys, getting ready for the next fishing day. You kind of had to do that before a fishing day. So, uh, So here it is. As I keep moving toward home, my eyes settle on rust spots, circular patches that bleed over the tops and sides of certain boulders and rocks. These are the human artifacts, such as we have, our historical monuments, the marks of fishermen past, present, and I suppose future. 
each rust patch, like those that helped me spot the, the two all-important rocks I just readied for fishing, surrounds a hardened steel casing drilled by hand into granite. The ones we use I know with a particular intimacy, and I see them with an eye that habitually checks buoys, lines, eye bolts, and knots. It's these others, the record of unused rock anchors along the low tide line, that interests me in a different way. I like to simply look at them and remember where they are, to note the particular stretch of beach they address, and guess how someone fished there, or why, or whether we might again. Some of the old casings are nearly gone, bled out into the gritty granite. The plugs and others are rusted to a welded solidity, worn to hardened nubs. Some we know well, some we drilled ourselves, some we abandoned, some abandoned us. Some of the smaller rocks, the ones that weigh only as much as compact cars, are ones George used to winch up, move out as anchors, and then winch up again at season's end and move back in. George was our neighbor who used to fish the same beach. I step onto a rectangular drilled rock I've never seen before. Every bit of casing and rust is gone. All that remains is a perfect, fat, finger-sized hole an inch and a half deep. I imagine a future archaeologist trying to make sense of this remnant of an earlier culture. A hole in a rock. If I didn't know fishing, did not have the whole picture, it would be hard to guess its origin. It's hard enough to imagine a person drilling a hole in a rock with two hands and a hammer, a pointy-teethed metal tube and a driving pin. The first time I watched George do it, I was amazed. Strike and turn, strike and turn. The collision sings out like a bell. The teeth grind granite to dust. The beach has rung with all this pounding. I've rung it myself. I have a poem that I, that's new uh, that I just wrote um, about the muscle in my hand. Oh. Wait, could I read that? I'd be... Okay. We'd be thrilled. <laughs> the poem is called What Persists. I have a muscle in my hand. It came from picking fish. The years are past my set net days, and still that bulge persists. When I sit and think of things, I often clench my fist. That muscle, like a hardened nut, pops out as I resist. It lumps up strong with memory of all it did those days in squeezing heads and pulling through, in snapping loose, all ways of gripping fish to pitch to bin or tote or tender in my time. I like to rub it like a lamp that brings me magic of a kind. I feel its strength, a muscle then and still a muscle now, a part of me forever mine, a life to which I bow. Mm-hmm. Here's uh, here's my here's my muscle. I find that other people don't have that. Oh, you, you do. know when when you I do. was picking fish, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> it persists. <laughs> uh, just a little bit of a loop back to what you just read. Um, so these rocks mm. and metal eye bolts and and ways of fastening line and nets to these heavy objects. And the implication there was that as you walked the beach, you had evidence of of so much time where this good set net site was operated. Say more about uh, 
that side of Cook Inlet with respect to time? Are they still fishing over there, or how, how does that go? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's quite interesting. It, um, there were, of course, first indigenous people there. There was a village of Custitan uh, quite near us that uh, was abandoned in the early parts of the 20th century after the big uh, flu epidemic that wiped out so many Native people in Alaska, and the people who did not die had moved up to another village on the same side of the inlet. And there's evidence of the, that village still there. And then, then after that, there was there was a cannery in in that area in the 30s, anyway. And apparently, there was there was a huge king salmon fishery there that they would come into that bay there, and there were. A, I've read like hundreds of fishermen who who fished there and it was a cutthroat fishery. They I mean they literally were cutting one another's nets, try to get the best spots and get it was some kind advantage. Of, yeah, it sounded like a, a crazy thing. And then um later on I I, par, I think partially because a sandbar built up there, it didn't have the same fish and they were it was probably overfished anyway. Uh so then in our day, there was just one family fishing in that area. But some of some of what we see along our beach, in addition to uh, these rocks, there are there are old stakes. There's metal stakes and there there are wooden stakes. And as the as the water moves and you know sand fills in and covers things, and then it erodes out depending on the winter storms. They they, they appear and disappear. These stakes, and then there's also a line of of bigger posts that were part of a fish trap back in the uh, I don't you know again the early part of the 20th century probably, and that that was a, a way of fishing where um, fish kind of coming along would hit a hit a wall of either a metal fence or or nets, and then kind of get herded into a trap area and. Um, it was a very efficient way, and these were generally often owned by uh, Seattle interests, so they were very sort of controversial. And it's part of the reason for Alaska statehood was to get rid of them. Same, when, with, you know. same with Southeast Alaska. Yeah. Oh yes, it, all, the whole state. And but that one apparently didn't operate very long. And our our long, old time neighbor had told us uh, it, because of the currents there, it hadn't really worked very well. So. But we spent, but we have these, you know, metal posts that had been pile driven in at at some point, and see them, and it reminds you of the past. Mm-hmm. So the the whole, I mean, the whole beach is kind of like a a history in these tangible material things that mm-hmm. you can see. Mm-hmm. And currently, uh, twenty twenty, are there set net fisheries over there now? You know, not so much, and that's something that's been been interesting. Uh, we 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 stopped fishing when. The the industry changed. First, there were there was competition from farm fish, and so the market really kind of collapsed for a while. And we had always, uh, you know, fished along our beach and then delivered to tenders, which are boats that would come by and collect our fish. And it, it became uneconomical for the canneries to send tenders, so we really sort of we lost our market. So uh, basically, there's nobody. There may be someone fishing part of the peak of the run over there now um with a who has a sort of bigger boat to transport fish but uh we didn't we didn't adapt or adjust and the 
fishing permits that were fishing there could be used elsewhere in the inlet. They sort of all migrated over to the other side of the inlet. So it's interesting that it's probably, I would say, that area is less inhabited, less fished than it has been probably for hundreds of years. It's, it's more wild now. And, the you know, the last years that we spent over there, we were the only people there, and it felt really lonely. All our neighbors were gone. Everything was getting overgrown. Mm-hmm. Cabins were, you know, falling, falling apart and ended up sort of spending just using the cabin more recreationally mm-hmm. um, and, and catching a few fish for ourselves to smoke or take mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we stopped the commercial operation. Yeah. So these things these things evolve, and not always in the way that you would imagine. Right. It's not necessarily a straight-line, linear progression uh, with a, one kind of slope or another. Maybe at Fisher Poets, uh, Nancy, you, you spoke of the beluga whales, and when early at your setnet site, you'd be, fair to say, awestruck by hundreds of belugas passing by your site. And then noticing a decrease in those. So two-part question, curiosity. Uh, One is, you know, reflections on change over time. You you alluded to that Mm -hmm. with respect to the belugas. A, and then B is uh, the Harriman expedition where your Green Alaska book goes into that quite in depth. Kind of two-part, belugas and harriman and time. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm just very interested in history and natural history both, and they're all part of it. So uh, so I, did, I, I wrote a book about uh, beluga whales. It's called Beluga Days. And, and you're right. Uh, that was one of the joys of our fishing lives was really fishing with whales. Big pods of beluga whales, more than 100 at a time, would would um, be passing our camp very close to shore. You could, felt like you could almost reach out and touch them. Um, but they, we were between two bays, and they would go back and forth between the two bays, so they would always be sort of traveling. And uh, they never went near our nets because they have super sonar. But if we were out in the skiff, we would we would like to just cut the motor and just kind of drift among them and watch them. And anyway, they... Oh, starting in the early 90s, it became, um, we saw them fewer and fewer, and that's when I got interested and started sort of doing some research and ended up writing this book. But it turned out that they were being uh, hunted heavily from Alaska Native hunters who lived in Anchorage, Mm. who had moved to the urban area from other parts of Alaska where they had whale hunting traditions, but Mm -hmm. then they were putting all this pressure and you know it was completely legal because they were native people and they have an exception to the marine mammal protection act mm-hmm. for subsistence use they weren't coordinated so they didn't know who else was hunting they didn't know how many were being taken anyway population got drawn down very very low to maybe 300 mm-hmm. in the whole inlet and there had probably been thousands no one, no there was never a real count ever done so we don't know what that baseline was Uh, the hunting stopped and the whales were protected under the endangered species act starting in 1999 and they they now have not they have not recovered as expected they should have been recovering and it now appears that the problem may be 
an issue of food. They're, they may not be getting enough of the right kind of fish, specifically king salmon, at the time that they need them. Mm-hmm. And it may be depressing their reproductive abilities and their survival. Yeah, yeah. it's a very interesting uh, story and kind of a not, a, not a real happy conservation story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and a, a strong, poignant example of how interconnected, interrelated all of these natural systems are and how they relate to health and flourishing or the opposite of that. And, you know, there's so much else going on in Cook Inlet, too. There's, you know, a lot of oil and gas development. There's a lot of traffic of freight coming up and down the inlet. And there's uh, waste systems that are not treated very well that are being dumped into the inlet. And noise, it's uh, it's just a very busy place. That's probably a hard place for whales to be living well. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, as a, a bit of a segue, I'm fascinated with uh, your work with the Harriman Expedition. And so this was uh, 1899. And say, you know, describe what that was all about. Uh, John Muir was a part of it. Uh, John Burroughs and John Muir were kind of the, the two Johns. Okay, John. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. there was a brewer too. Um, he was a, a more minor character on it, but uh. no. Uh, basically, yeah, 1899. Uh, Edward Harriman was the great railroad mogul, probably the richest man in the country at that time. Mm-hmm. A millionaire, not a billionaire, <laughs> but the equivalent. And um, he put together a, a, a cruise to Alaska. As as a philanthropist, it was a family cruise, but as a philanthropist, uh, he wanted to sort of be a, invite other guests. So he it, he made it turned it into a scientific cruise, and he had uh, all the sort of leading scientists of the time aboard, and they they spent two months cruising the coast of Alaska all the way to Russia, and dro- you know dropping off little scientific parties here and there to do things, and um, then they wrote a big report at the end, and Edward Curtis the famous photographer was part of it taking photos all along i mean it's a remarkable story it was so i so i managed to retrace just part of it in sometime in 1997 i think it was with my partner ken who was taking a taking a tender out west so i rode from homer out to false pass out on mm-hmm. so along the alaska peninsula and out towards the aleutians and to see some of those places that they had seen on the Harriman trip and then kind of reimagining their trip and what they'd seen and then making comparisons then and now. And the I guess the takeaway that I came to in, in my book is, uh, again, this change through time. At the time, um, Alaska was was a territory then. It was, it was lawless, basically. Uh, it was... It was hunted out. Mr. Harriman wanted to shoot a, a bear. And, I mean, if you can imagine, they, they couldn't find a bear. They were looking all the way along the, the um, you know, south, southeast Alaska coming up the Inside Passage. All these mm-hmm. places that we know are just full of bears. We see them all the time today, all, all along. The, he had horses to go hunting with. He had hunting guides as part of the party. They kept, you know, kind of getting off, going to look for bears. They couldn't find any until they got to Kodiak, 
where he finally shot a a very young sow and her new cub um, mm. there on Kodiak Island. But then, but the, you know, they also visited um, some canneries like near Cordova and then um, Kodiak and the Alaska Peninsula, where the fish runs had already been decimated at that time because the fishing practices at that time were just to put nets across creeks and take all the fish. Mm. Um, and they they had wiped out uh, runs, entire runs. And so there were idle fishermen and idle cannery workers kind of hanging around and no fish. And then they went to the Pribilof Islands, which were the first seal islands. And a couple of the scientists had been there a few years before. And they were like astounded that the first seals were there were very few compared to what they'd seen before. Hmm. So some some of the some of this the importance of the Harriman expedition was that it led to to some protections protection for the fur seals was 1912. It was a direct result of this Harriman trip. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And um, anyway, what we know now, we have lots of bears. We have fur seals came back. They're kind of in trouble again. Uh, the fish runs have been pretty well managed by the state of Alaska, you know, strong salmon runs every summer. So, you know, we see that things can be managed and it's not a straight line towards terribleness. Um, <laughs> but we have we have new threats today with climate change and ocean acidification and these things that are much more complicated. And, I, you know, I write it right in my book, if you're cutting off a salmon stream with a net that's a really easy solution you you let some salmon through you know and then they have a chance to reproduce but the challenges today with all the pressures on the ocean plastics and high seas fishing and acidification and climate the the warming ocean all, you know all these things are much harder to deal with well definitely and if you're willing, I'd like to explore those kind of one at a time and then maybe see how, once again, there is an interconnected matrix of cause and effect and influence and causality. So your book, Early Warming. Yeah. Positioning Alaska as really the place where it was happening early and rapidly yeah, and so the 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 book, let's see, came out in twenty eleven, so it's been a while. And I and at that time, I wasn't trying to. I wanted to go beyond the fact that it was happening. I wanted to show how Alaska was, uh, or places in Alaska, and people were coping and adapting with climate change. So that was my that was my purpose in that book. There'd already been a lot written about the effects of climate change at that point. I didn't want to write that same thing. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to have a new angle. And, and then, um, sad to say, there's been very little, very little response to um, the, the, the situation in terms of mitigating all the, the cause, the, all the carbon dioxide we're putting into the air and then also going into the ocean. Mm -hmm. Well, and... Fair to say that the amount of carbon dioxide into the planet's atmosphere is fairly uniform planet-wide, but the consequences of this are not uniform, and that the Arctic latitudes, Alaska, as you know, or as you've been looking at, 
is having more repercussions and consequence of uh, climate mm -hmm. crisis. And why is that? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we've gone from calling it climate change to the, the climate crisis at this point, because it, it truly is. And it's called ar Arctic amplification. And it's, it's just, it's because basically the, the Arctic has been warming about at, at least twice the rate of most of the rest of the planet. And partly there are these feedback loops with the sea ice disappearing and then the the water, which is a darker color, absorbing more heat. And instead of reflecting the heat back, it's being absorbed and it's also being absorbed in the or in the land and just heating heating up the northern places more and more. You know, it's not good. Not good. <laughs> uh a comment on uh, permafrost melting and what some of that uh, heretofore frozen fungi world that uh, characterizes so much of the Arctic. Uh, what's what's going on there? Yeah, well, I don't know for anyone who wants to visit uh, Denali National Park this summer, maybe, uh, which is in the interior, and just the permafrost thaw there is is um, big mountainsides are sloughing and where the road goes through the park and there's only one 92 mile road through the park it's been sloughing two, two inches a week i think it is it's a very anyway it's it's likely that the road is going to end up being closed and the park's going to not be able to be visited by people people aren't going to be able to get into it because there's only that one road but mm -hmm. yeah whole everywhere there's just these and along rivers they're big sloughing banks into the rivers. But one of the places I visited in, in my, um, for my book was you know, one of the sort of poster child places is Shishmaref, Alaska on the mm -hmm. Northwest coast. It's had a lot of attention and that's why I wanted to visit it to see they were, they were really pretty good at promoting their cause. They had some people there who knew how to work the media. So I was interested in that, but it's, a, you know, it's a lot of villages People used to be more, move around more seasonally, and and then when the missionaries and government people came in, they kind of they made them move into permanent communities, and and they put these communities in places that were easy to unload barges and so on. So a lot of communities in Alaska are on barrier islands or mm -hmm. right very low on the coast, and Shishmaref is one of those. It's on a barrier island, and it's a combination of the thawing ground, which is just falling apart, where it used to be hard, frozen. And then because there's not ice for much of the year that would be kind of holding things together too. So the storm waves come in and are eroding the coast and they have to move. They're one of many villages that, mm. that needs to move and they have not gotten any help to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it, I mean, it just looks like eventually people are just going to move on their own and kind of abandon the place. Mm. And, you know, and it's very sad because this is a unique culture that's been there for thousands of years with their, and when they disperse, they probably disperse to different places. They won't move as one community. They would like to move as one community mm -hmm. to some higher ground, but the expense of doing that is more than they can afford. Mm -hmm. And, um, the government is has not been helpful mm -hmm. and that's part of my concern too is we we are alaska is the richest state in the richest 
in the richest country in the world. And if we can't help climate refugees, you know, what's going to happen to the rest of the world? All those people in Bangladesh and on the, you know, islands in the Pacific and, um, you know, all these poor places. If we can't do it and set an example of what might be done, you know, it's it's over for so many people. Yeah, well, and the only thing that comes to mind on that point, Nancy, is that it's important to begin to bring these issues, these projections up in our minds and talk about them because there's going to be a great deal of suffering. And if some of our common humanity is about reducing that, then we've got to put our shoulder to the wheel, so to speak, to try to address these things. And Lord knows they're complicated. And I don't think any one human has a a good angle on it, but there might be some value, some hope in uh, bringing it up and talking about these things. And so some of that is what's going on here. Yeah. We, I mean, we had under uh, under prior governors, we had various task forces or whatever that were sort of looking at climate issues. I mean, because infrastructure is a huge. If you're building new roads or anything, pipelines, you have to consider the climate chaos, and you got to build for that. And our current governor is pretty much a climate denier and eliminated any of that, and so it's not being even assessed in terms of what you know what we would need to do in our you know, our transportation infrastructure our housing infrastructure any you know building standards any of that and that's that's just very sad that's yeah. just wrong yeah well <laughs> well said and and uh, concretely and tersely that's just wrong yeah yeah well uh <laughs> i would like to shift to your most recent book, and I'm fascinated with it. I've I've got a little bit of a, a glint in my eye for your most recent book uh, titled simply PH, a novel. And uh, I just read it and found it very compelling because there was a good measure of ocean acidification science in the book. And because you uh, crafted it as a novel... It was a very compelling read. And so just as a, as a general introduction to PH, say more. What prompted you to write it, and why did you choose the form of a novel? And I'm so curious about PH. Yeah, yeah, thank you for, for asking that, Dan. Yeah, after I wrote Early Warming, and it didn't seem to really be that helpful, <laughs> didn't get much attention and and it was kind of a you know I was trying to make it a positive story about what you know how we can adapt and mitigate and so on I had some examples of that but sort of it came out at a time when really no one really wanted to hear about climate issues mm-hmm. I think we've changed now I think we're in a better situation but in researching it the part of the story that sort of gripped me the most was what was going on in the oceans and so the last section of that book is really issues with ocean warming and then acidification. And so I thought to myself, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to do more with that. And what if I wrote a, a story that might be more fun to read? So what, a fiction story with some characters, some humor, 
and that maybe it could sort of seduce a, a different readership, not just the choir, so to speak, but some other people who might read it for the story. And so that was that was my my goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to Im- embed the uh, the science into a story, and, and but without being too didactic about it. And that's that's a danger. And I think some people would probably say that maybe I was a little bit didactic. It's you know it's a little bit it's it has a message. I'm trying to sort of teach people some science, but but I but I tried to put it in you know, a whole context. One, I mean, one of the main characters is a, a professor at a university. And so I used the opportunity where he could kind of be working with students and sort of explaining some things. So I wasn't explaining them, the character was. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's a, a child involved in it too, who, and there's an artist. Cause I'm, one of my interests is really the relationship between science and art. They're, you know, they're really two ways of looking at the world and mm-hmm. investigating and mm-hmm. I wanted to work with that. So, so I had a lot of fun writing it. It was, it was a fun project. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would love to uh, loop back to the uh, general orientation of uh, linking and, and uh, musing upon how science and art are different and might work together. So I want to loop back to that. But in the meantime, Tell us a little bit about this uh, creature called a pteropod. Yes. Uh, the the book PH has on the cover a uh, pteropod, which is something I insisted on. And actually, my, my title for the book was The Pteropod Gang, um, <laughs> which the publisher just objected to. Uh, they said, no one's going to know what a pteropod is, and they're not going to know how to pronounce it. It's, you know, it's P-T-E-R. O P O D, pteropod, meaning you know flying like a pterosaur. It's a flying foot, mm. and it's a um, pteropod is a, a tiny marine snail. Is basically it's a it's a zooplankton, so it's floating in the water, and it's evolved in its snail-like form that so that its foot has sort of divided into what look like wings. So it's also called a sea butterfly. Mm. So when it's in the water, it's kind of flapping like a little butterfly through the water. And it is a very important uh, food for salmon and other critters, you know, a little higher up the food web. Mm-hmm. And it's very vulnerable to ocean acidification. It has a shell, and these shells are currently being eroded by the oceans becoming more more acidic because of absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, changing the pH of the ocean. Uh, so the shells are, and the one on the cover is one that's damaged, becoming, you know, kind of becoming pitted. And so the harder the harder this creature needs to work to build its shell or to repair its shell, it's taking energy. This is one, this is one early victim of ocean acidification. And the, I mean, the oceans are, changing the and you know southern that's i also covered that in my book southern species are moving north maybe replacing northern species you know competing against them and just a lot of change mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. hard to say what the longer term effects are going to be but again mm-hmm. probably not good because it's happening very fast mm-hmm. too, too fast for things to really you know evolve and adapt 
those were the words on my yeah. on my tongue. So pteropods, how how big a, a creature are these? And and uh, could a fisherman out there uh, see a raft of them, or how how did that say go in years gone by? What what are these pteropods like? How big are they? They're uh, there's different there's different species, different kinds, and they're different sizes. But the 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 bigger ones are the size of a lentil. Okay. And they're in, they're in the column, and I don't think you would see them. And they're very they're very delicate, so they're they've been very hard to sort of collect and keep alive. So you don't really see them in a you know like an aquarium or uh, or a in a way that where they can be studied in a lab. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't they just don't survive very well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, think of think of a small lentil, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. little grain, almost like a little grain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a major food of pink salmon in particular and I think it's like half of their diet mm-hmm. right now. And there there are not there are other things that pink salmon eat and so there's the potential of something kind of filling in at least some of that other mm-hmm. other plankton, um, copepods and other things. But but I mean these these snails are very rich for one thing. They're they're little packets of great fat. So yeah, so I, I don't I don't know what the current thinking is. Um, I don't I don't think anyone really has a good handle on what the loss of them will be, other than not good. <laughs> right, uh, making it difficult in the food web. Yes, yeah, 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 and they're not the only thing being affected. They're ju- they're something that that has been studied, and because of its shell, but they're other shelled. Anything that builds a a shell from calcium carbonate is as being affected and that in, that includes um mussels and clams and oysters and we've seen some of and that Dungeness already crab. Dun- and crab right um and even a lot of the sort of juvenile forms of um other creatures have a calcium carbonate shell or part so it's um yeah it's going to affect the whole web really yeah and Nancy do you care to uh shine light on the process and and why the uh, CO2, the carbon in the atmosphere, ends up in the ocean and what that then does to carbonic acid. Uh, Can you trace that out briefly? Yeah. um, uh, I I mean, I struggled with with that in in the book, sort of saying in a way that would not get too hard to understand but that yeah the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere about about a third of that has been absorbed by the ocean and we used to think that that was a good thing because it was keeping it out of the atmosphere and you know it was kind of hiding it you know taking it away right um and it was it took quite a while before people noticed that it was actually changing the chemistry of the ocean it wasn't just disappearing to somewhere uh, and it's actually increasing over time. The ocean's absorbing more, and the, but there's, I mean, there's this interface between the atmosphere and the ocean that kind of you know balances. So, I don't know. Without getting into the chemistry, it, I think the easiest way is to just say that the yeah the carbon dioxide sort of break breaks apart and reforms, and then it it interferes with the the ability of creatures to use that carbon in shell building, hmm. the, uh, the, the way the chemistry is 
affected. Mm-hmm. It's sort of in 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 pieces that they can't. You it's sort of like you know building building blocks, and these are they 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 they're losing these building blocks that they would be able to g- grab a hold of and use because mm-hmm. it's in a different form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's something to be mindful of and to watch and. Uh... It relates largely to the attention necessary to what's going on with our atmosphere and what we can do now. Maybe not so much in mitigation, maybe, but in adaptation and what sorts of things that we humans can do to fundamentally keep rolling in constructive ways and minimize some of the suffering that could come, probably will come, from big changes in the macro environment that we call planet Earth. And sadly, uh, even if we stopped burning, car, you know, stopped burning fossil fuels today, which we're not going to do, there's so much in the atmosphere right now it's going to continue to be absorbed in the ocean. We're probably headed for a mass extinction in the ocean and, uh, you know, it may become a jellyfish. I mean, some people, you know, don't want to be too alarmist, but could, could become an ocean of mostly jellyfish and, and more primitive creatures that can, that can live in, a, in that environment. Mm. But it'll be interesting to see how, how quickly things can adapt and what will happen. Well, and, and thanks for that, too, because uh, part of what we are aware of as humans is how much we don't know and how strongly things can change quickly and what the <laughs> the strength of the adaptive factors in different species and in different environments uh it's it's wonderful to behold it's wonderful to see for example how the dams coming down in the Elwha and how quickly the salmon have taken advantage of that, and uh, so that uh, yeah. I always I always look for things that, <laughs> that uh, can help uh, balance out maybe some of the projections and some of the realities that that are important to take in and be a part of as well. That might be Nancy a, a segue into any reflections on science and art, and uh, how those two dance together. I just, I, I mean, I think of, actually, I think it was Einstein who said uh, science and art are, are two branches of the same tree. And I, I just think that's so true. It's just, it's two, it's two ways of investigating and understanding the world. And, and I like them both. I don't have really that much of a science background. Uh, really, I mean, academically, I, I don't. It's, I'm all kind of self-taught in the sciences and I'm not, and not an artist either, except for you know, as a writer. But I, but I, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of working together these days with, uh, more than I've seen in the past of you know, science, science and art complementing each other, sort of very intentionally, mm-hmm. uh, working together to explain the world, and I, I love that. And I, and I, you know, we're, I think we're seeing a sort of a breaking down in general of of different disciplines. Like even within the sciences themselves, it's you know used to be you know chemistry over here and biology over here, and um, you know now I think 
we talk about well ecology and just you know just understanding all the relationships that we have and i think we're we're seeing that working together in all the disciplines mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. and we can learn from both we can we can sort of participate in both we can use we can use all the tools mm-hmm. along the way and, and and art is beautiful and the world is beautiful and so that's one way of really looking intensely at the world we live in and even as it is in trouble the natural world to find those spots where we can love it yeah well well said and and so listeners this is being recorded in the context of the fisher poet gathering in astoria at the end of february and one thing i've noticed being here is the what nancy alluded to the science and art as being wedded as uh, branches of the same tree. And there's a spirit that goes on here that is really quite extraordinary. And Nancy, any reflections on what's going on right here with Fisher Poets? Uh, yeah, uh, yes. I, this is my third year coming here, and I, I regret that I didn't come much sooner since it's, I think, the 23rd year of the gathering. And I, I mean, I just love it. And it is it is what you said. It's it's people bringing their their personal experiences from the commercial fishing world, and and because of that, the natural world, and you know, celebrating. It's a it's a complete celebration, and I I love the democratization, if that's the right word, of the whole gathering because it's open to anyone who wants to get up in front of a, a crowd and read some poetry or tell some stories or play music. And then, you know, they're not, quote, experts in anything other than their lives and sharing that. And so, uh, and you have these great audiences who are very attentive and appreciative of of hearing from people. And it's an incredible mix of, of material. It's art, for sure. And the fishermen are among the people who live closest with the natural world. And you you just that's impressed upon you when you hear some of these stories about, you know, how their, their knowledge of fish and fisheries and the ocean and everything that goes with it and their appreciation of the gifts, the gifts that they've gotten in their lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And, and well said, it's, it's, uh, wow. it's ongoing. And you walk around at Astoria, wonderful town, and you just, kind of pick up on the vibe and the the countenances of folks on the street. And right now there's a lot of smiles going on, which is, which is wonderful to be with. Well, Nancy is, is a bit of a coda. Is there anything that comes to mind that you'd like to finish out with a a thought, a reflection, another poem, uh, anything that comes to mind right at this juncture? I don't think so. I think you've asked some great questions and I'm, feel kind of done. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, we could talk for the rest of the day, I'm sure. <laughs> that would be um, fun. And yeah. I, I mean, I love the sort of the confluences that you and I have had in our, in our separate lives, mm. um, kind of living through some of the same, the same time periods and, and uh, experiences and mindsets and all that. So it's been great to meet you. Yeah, well, reciprocal. Uh, if somebody's very interested in in your work, how would you direct them to find out more? Uh, I do have a website. It's it's uh, writernancylord.com. 
also on Facebook. And uh, these days I'm doing uh, quite a bit of, of teaching. I teach in two different writing programs. One's a science writing program and one's a master of fine arts program. And I write book reviews for the Anchorage paper. So if anyone wants to go to school <laughs> or um, or just, you know, read, read uh, reviews of northern books, and I pick a lot of books that have to do with the natural environment and fishing-related things, working lives. So you can find those at the Anchorage Daily News website. Oh, excellent. Okay, and... A big thanks to the listeners, and if you find uh, the Alaska Story Project compelling, I'd invite you to share it with uh, the modern means, and our website is www.alaskastoryproject.com, and please share and visit, and uh, on we go, continuing to explore. Thank you, Nancy. Yeah, well, thank you. This was a lovely conversation. Over now.